our passage this morning as we continue in our series in James. It's chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Uh, Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. See that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Christianity is not a religion It's a relationship. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm guessing you've heard that many times before. Uh, It is a a cliche by now. I'm, I'm sure many of you have used that phrase in the past. I certainly have said something along similar lines, insisting Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion. You can understand the really important point that it's making, right? Let's not be too cynical. It's making a really good point to some extent. It's saying at the center of our faith is this living and vital relationship with God. It's all about having this personal relationship with Jesus. And you would say, well, that's fair enough. The problem, of course, is that it's throwing away something essential in order to convey that truth. Now, what's essential in throwing out the idea of Christianity being a religion? Well, I would argue that it's part of the religion aspect that defines the relationship. To be in a meaningful relationship, which let's just insist that's what Christianity is, it means that we have also thought about what that religion means. Uh, When I was in high school and even into college, it was popular to, to at times have a DTR. Oh, someone laughed. A define the relationship. You ever heard of this? A DTR, a define the relationship. The idea here is that you have a crush on a girl uh, and you're feeling vibes from her. And so it's time to have a DTR. We need to define the relationship. I want to be more than friends. And so it went something like this, right? You said like, you know, I just want you to know I want to be more than friends. I really like you. And what does she say back? She says, well, you're really nice. (laughs) That relationship has been defined. But we define our relationships with our marriages, right? We hopefully don't say, "I, I don't like to think about what marriage is like. I don't like to think about who I'm married to. I just want to have a relationship. 
Now, what you believe about your marriage, what you believe about your spouse, that will dramatically affect how you live and carry out your marriage. James is interested in making sure that we're defining our understanding of this relationship with God rightly. Can you have a faith that does no good deeds, that for all intents and purposes makes just no difference, and can that faith save you? What good is it if someone prays a prayer accepting Jesus into his or her life, but then doesn't follow Jesus? Does that prayer make him a Christian? Does that prayer make her a Christian? Does it matter if someone professes Christ but shows no evidence over the years of becoming more and more like Jesus? And so James is interested in defining this relationship. Our passage is really the only part of the book of James dealing with doctrine or right teaching. And and doctrine, that word, can sound kind of sterile. It can sound kind of boring. Maybe some of you are thinking, I'm just not really interested in doctrine. But the thing is, is that we all have doctrine. We may not think carefully about our beliefs. Not everyone examines their beliefs in careful ways. But um, living as if doctrine doesn't matter is basically a doctrine. Believing that doctrine isn't that important, I just believe what the Bible teaches is most certainly a doctrine. We all have doctrines and need to think about the beliefs we have. And James, in particular, is interested in the doctrine of salvation. And he keeps coming back to this question, what is saving faith? Really quick, I want to put something on the table as we set out to look at this passage together. There are two ways, predominantly, there are more, but let's say there are two predominant ways the Bible talks about salvation. More often than not, and this is the way that we typically use the word salvation, it has to do with the forgiveness of sins, right? Salvation has to do with being saved from judgment. That's true, and that's correct, and we will continue to use salvation in that way. But salvation can have another effect as well. Salvation can also have the idea of being liberated and set free from the power of sin over our lives. The idea here is we are all enslaved to our sinful nature, and so salvation is getting at this idea of being set free from that power of sin over our lives. So salvation, broadly speaking, is the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end of God's redeeming work in our lives. Salvation includes our justification. God declares us righteous. It includes our sanctification, God's work of making us righteous. And it includes our glorification of being made righteous, the consummation of God's act and work of redemption. So there's a very real sense where we can say, Jesus saved me, Jesus is saving me, and Jesus will save me. And James uses salvation in that big picture way. The whole process of salvation from start to finish. Being granted forgiveness, that's the foundation. And out of that foundation, we grow in holiness. All right, so that's on the table. Big picture of salvation. Beginning, middle, and the end. And everything in between. And so the question that James has for us, which we'll look at, is what does true saving faith look like? Three points. It's a faith that is alive, it's a faith that's active, and it's a faith that is attested. Faith is alive, active, and attested. So first of all, James describes true or saving faith as a faith that is alive. James opens up his discussion with an example, right? He's always got these great illustrations. He's a master teacher himself. So in verse 15 of chapter 2, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. All right, James sets us up with this picture. We have a church member. It's a brother or sister. This is a church member. They come to the church, and they're both poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Poorly clothed likely means they have the, a tunic on for cover-up, but they don't have outerwear to protect them from the cold. They don't have enough food. And so you see this need, and what's the response? It's go in peace. It's something along the lines of, may God go with you. I mean, we recognize this language, don't you? This is religious talk. May God go with you is a religious cover. It's a religious cover for a failure to act. Instead of, here, I'll come with you to help rectify this need, it's may God go with you. Maybe we say something like, I'll pray for you. That's particularly uncomfortable because aren't we the answer to that person's prayer? This person is hungry, and so we should feed them, but instead we say, that's terrible, let me pray for you. And so what good is this kind of faith that offers thoughts and prayers when action can be taken? We'll jump to verse 26, the very end of our passage. James writes, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We have a body, no breath in it. It's a corpse. There's no heartbeat. And so we might ask at this point, what are the vital signs of faith? And James is saying pretty clearly, this latches on to what we looked at last week as well. James is saying, here are the vital signs. It's a, lack of, it's a life of mercy, compassion, and love. It's true and genuine religion is care for those in need. It's a life that looks a lot like Jesus. My experience as a Reformed Christian is to have James weaponized against me. It's happened a few times through the years. We talk a lot about grace. We talk about the doctrines of grace. Grace, God's one-way love, is the bread and butter of this church. I get up in the morning to do this job because I am so enamored by God's grace and want to communicate that message to you. And so what will often happen is you will talk about the beauties and, and the wonder and, and the glories of God's grace, and someone will say, grace is great, but don't forget James. Remember what James says, you also have to have works. But I don't think on any of those conversations I've had, they're using works in the same way James is using works. I hope by the end of the sermon we're a little clearer on this apparent conflict, but the point I want to make now is just how much James, even when he talks about works, goes against so much of the legalistic forms of Christianity that exist. As we've seen for a couple of weeks now, for James, what is the fulfillment of the law? It's love. And so here, works equals compassion and eagerness to serve those in need. That does not sound like religious legalism. It sounds like certain forms of secular legalism. It doesn't sound like religious legalism. Think of the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They harped on all kinds of laws. They cared deeply about tradition. They were scrupulous about the law, but only up to a point. And you know what that point usually was? Money. Money. Once you took a closer look at their relationship with money, it became uncomfortable. Keep in mind, James could have given us any example here, but he chose this example. Jesus said they place yokes on others, the Pharisees. They place yokes on others they aren't willing to bear. They're whitewashed tombs. They look really, really good on the outside, but on the inside they're dead. And this kind of legalism misses the aim of the law, which is love. 
The aim of God's law is not orderliness. That's not a bad goal. If you're the city of Temecula drafting rule, laws, or if you're a school who's putting together rules for your students, I would even argue God's law brings order. God is a God of order. But the aim of God's law is love. Love of God, love of neighbor, which as we've seen and will continue to see are completely intertwined. And James is calling us to have a saving faith that is alive. A faith that produces the fruit of good works. A faith that results in a merciful and compassionate life. A faith that bears the fruit of righteousness that looks more and more like Jesus. All right, so first of all, the saving faith needs to be alive. What are the vital signs? It's a life that looks like Jesus. A life of compassion. A life of love and mercy. Secondly, saving faith for James is active. If faith that is alive maybe looks like loving your neighbor, faith that is active is responding to God's goodness and grace in your life. Verse 18, James sets forth a rhetorical argument. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith, though, apart from your works, and I will show my faith by my works. All right, what is James addressing? Or maybe better, who is James addressing at this point? He's targeting a kind of mere confessionalism. This is someone who merely says he is a Christian in name only. Maybe I grew up in a Christian home or I live in a largely Christian society. This is I am a Christian by osmosis. James is addressing people who assume their heritage and knowledge and respectability gain favor with God. But James calls this faith empty and vain. It's dormant. It's useless. And then in verse 19, he gives us a pretty compelling example why this is the case. Um, he, he brings up demons, right? He says, you know, that you believe that God is one. You do well. That's great. But even the demons believe and they shudder. The demons believe that God is one. This is the ancient creed of Israel. It's the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Maybe the New Testament equivalent would be Christ is Lord. And so you have these demons who are able to confess, and they even believe, the basic confession of God. And, and so it's great when you confess the, the same thing because it's true, God is one, but, take, but look, the demons confess the same thing. And so what's ironic here for James is that the demons confess God is one, and here's the kicker, it means something to them because they respond. They shudder. This might be better than the person who believes in God, is cool enough with Jesus, but literally changes nothing about how they live. We might say, and I think this is what James is saying, at least the demons shudder. Belief in God actually means something to these demons. Not a good thing, but something. Now, of course, James isn't suggesting we shudder. Demons hate God. They are hard against God. They are fearful of God's judgment. But I think you can draw out the point that confessing belief in God and who he is and what he has done should also make a difference. Not shuddering, but affection. Our love of God should make a difference. How does our faith become active? To the degree that we are delighted by God, our faith will be active. The psalmist uses the language of the Lord being our portion, the one who fills our cup. Maybe for us, a a better illustration, although this might be a painful illustration, is that you might think of faith like a gas tank of a car. That's why it's painful. I'm thinking about gas. Just as a car won't run, it won't be active if the gas tank is empty, we might say our tank is filled by God and his goodness and greatness. That's what makes our faith active. 
Not knowledge of God, but love of God makes faith active. A faith that doesn't have its tank, and really inverted commas, a faith that doesn't have its tank filled by God's goodness and greatness will be useless. It will sit there dormant. It won't be active at all. This is a warning for us, for churchgoers. It's for those who might be able to say the right things. It's for those who are able to articulate maybe true doctrines. It's those who maybe attach themselves. They like the morality of Christianity. But if we don't love God, it's useless. And it is not saving. What does an active faith look like? How is it active? Well, here's just a number of, of ways I think we can see this. Active faith is a merciful faith. Why? Because it is so aware of the mercy that we've received in Christ. A useless faith is critical. Useless faith is critical. It does not interact with the mercy the one has received in Christ. An active faith looks to serve others. It's Jesus saying, I've come to, to, to serve, not to be served. But a useless faith says, no, I've come to be served, not to serve. It's self-absorbed. Active faith is repenting because it's humble. Useless faith, that's resisting. Active faith fights against sin. Useless faith, it it doesn't really mind being stained by the world. It kind of likes it. Active faith grows over time in godly character. It's active in love. It grows in joy in Jesus. Useless faith is angry. It's self-justifying. It's apathetic. And all that I've done there is just give you simple gospel logic. Because God, therefore I. Because I have received. Because I am already a child of God, therefore I do these things. Because Christ has done everything, this matters immensely. So you fill your tank with that. It's active. So for James, saving faith is alive, it's active. And then our last point, it's attested. Scripture bears witness to the kind of faith James is speaking to. Verses 21 and 25, James, or through 25, James uses the examples of Abraham and Rahab. We have two Old Testament figures who really couldn't be any different from one another. One is a man, one is a woman. Abraham is a member of God's family and God's people. Uh, he's the father of the faith. Rahab is an outsider. She's a Canaanite. She's a prostitute. Abraham is a key figure in the Bible. Rahab is a relatively minor supporting character. She does show up in the genealogy of Jesus, which is, which is considerable. But both, James says, demonstrate saving faith. True and living, useful faith that works its way out in obedience. James says, Scripture testifies to my point about what saving faith looks like. Faith has been alive and active and producing fruit. Now, James is not saying what some might argue, that there is faith, and you need to add to that faith your works so that you can gain salvation. That's not what James is teaching. That is not taught in the Bible. In fact, my question to someone who believes that you have to have faith and you have to add to your faith works, my question then is how many works, what kind of works, what is the quality of the works, what do they need to be, and what you have is a labyrinth of despair and anxiety. What's the answer? You'll never know. James in no way negates or rejects the teaching that faith results in justification. In your being declared righteous before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed alone. He does not negate or reject that teaching. James's concern is to remind us that our faith is justified in works. 
And so we might put it in this way, and this is not the language James uses, but I think it's what James is communicating. We are justified by faith. Our faith is justified by works. The way the reformers often phrase this is that faith alone justifies, and yet the faith that justifies is not alone. Faith and faith only saves you from sin and death, but it's not alone. It produces works. It's not you are saved by faith plus works. It's that you are saved by faith and that faith works. I'll say that one one more time. It's not that you are saved by faith plus works. It's that you are saved by faith and that faith works. Now, it's worth exploring where does all this confusion come from? Why do we read James? We start to feel a little bit off. We feel uh, concerned. We feel confused. Well, on the one hand, you have passages like Romans 3.28. Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then you have James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, it sounds like they're saying two different things. James is saying faith and works equals justification. Paul is saying, no, 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 just faith equals justification. But James and Paul are doing different things. Paul's explaining salvation to a Gentile world with an eye on how Jew and Gentile make up the one people of God. He is answering the question, what must I do to be saved? James is talking to religious people. Paul is writing to give comfort to those who are afflicted by guilt. James is writing to afflict those who maybe have a false comfort by nature, by virtue of just what they're confessing. Paul is talking about how a person is justified before God. James is talking about what reveals, what proves that that person is justified. They have a different aim. They use words in different ways. Paul uses justified to mean God's act of declaring sinners righteous. James uses justified as that which demonstrates, shows a person is righteous. And by the way, the rest of scripture uses justified in these ways as well. James sounds a lot like his brother Jesus, which I think is is kind of an important point to make. In Matthew 12, 37, Jesus says, On the day of judgment, by your words, you will be justified. No one, no Christian tradition believes that justification is based upon our words. So what's Jesus saying? Not that you will earn justification by your words, but your words will reveal that you are justified. Earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus says, My followers will be recognized not by their faith, but by their fruit, because the fruit reveals the faith. John 13, By this all people will know you are my disciples, not by what you confess, but by your love, because what you confess means something. How about Paul in Galatians 5? In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. That could be the heading of the book of James, couldn't it? Faith working through love. The consistent teaching of Scripture is that our works reveal our faith, but our faith justifies us before God. Now, real briefly, let's take a closer look at Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, remember the book of Genesis, he has a son promised to him, Isaac. Isaac is the one that God says, through you, I'm going to create a great nation that will be the blessing of all. He finally receives the promised child, and then a few years later, what does God say? Go to Mount Moriah and offer your son as a sacrifice. If you have further questions about that, talk to me after the service. I don't want to get bogged down. At the worst, Abraham believes, uh, this is controversial, but at the worst, he believes that, that Isaac will be resurrected. Not in the future, but like that day, he will be resurrected. 
because he believes so much that Isaac is the chosen child. And so he goes through with it, and of course God stops him. God does not have him go through with the sacrifice. The, The ram is provided as a substitute offering. But the point that James is drawing out is, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So what did Abraham's works do? They proved, they made public, they made visible, they made evident that Abraham had faith. His faith reckoned him as righteous before God back in Genesis 15. Seven chapters later, that same faith by which he is reckoned righteous in the eyes of God is proved to the world, is made evident to the world. Now what about Rahab? In Joshua 2, you have the story of Rahab who lives in the city of Jericho. Israel has sent spies into the city, and Rahab has heard of these people who have been delivered from the most powerful ancient nation in that region, Egypt. She has heard of these victories. She places faith in Yahweh and the Lord based on the news reports. It's like the gospel of the news reports of what what Yahweh has done for Israel. And so Rahab believes, and we believe she is saved based on those news reports. She puts her faith in the God of Israel. But now she has an opportunity to prove that faith. She has the opportunity when these two Israelite spies come to her to hide them and protect them or turn them over to the authorities, but she believes the Lord and so she hides them. And James says, and in this same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So what's James saying? Scripture just backs up exactly what I'm talking about. Saving faith matches these biblical examples. Saving faith for James is attested, it's witnessed to all throughout Scripture. Saving faith is alive and it's active and it's attested. So where do we go from here? Where should we close? At this point, I think it's very possible to respond to this sermon in wrong ways. One wrong way could say, okay, I need to get better. I need to get active. I need to get my acts together. But what has to motivate us to get there is this love for God, which is lacking. In other words, you can't fix a bad faith problem by getting to work. That doesn't make any sense. You really can't fix a bad faith problem by just giving up and throwing up your hands in despair. A bad faith problem finds its solution in looking to Jesus. Now, I know there are some in this room that might be rolling their eyes at this point, because that's always the application, looking to Jesus. Really? Even here? But let me explain and and hopefully convince you why I think this is the most legitimate application here. It's because looking to Jesus is what brings us to a true and living faith. Why does someone's faith look useless and dead? It's because, frankly, Jesus doesn't mean very much to that person. Isn't that the answer? Why does a person not have compassion and mercy in their life? Is it because they're not trying hard enough? No, it's because clearly they are disconnected from Jesus in some way where that vital union makes no impact. So very much the application from this passage is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. In fact, if your application is try harder, you might just be building up self-righteous calluses on your heart. And that's dangerous and deadly. 
No, looking to Jesus is the application. He's both the object and the author of our faith. He has gone ahead of us and he has lived a life of faith. Jesus is the object, the one in whom we are to believe. And at the end of the day, the heart of Christianity is trusting in a person and we need to see what he is like and stay close to him. Because you can't find a better person than Jesus. He lived his life with complete selfless love for those around him. He was just and he was compassionate. He lived this perfectly beautiful life. He was true. He spoke the truth in his life. No one takes my life from me, but I I lay it down. And by the way, I will take it back up again. He spoke truth in his life. He said he would die and rise again, and we believe he did. Who else do you want to build your life upon? Because you're building your life on someone. Uh, you're making a wager regardless. You're setting up your life on someone. It, It could be yourself, it could be someone else, but are they as good and true and beautiful as Jesus? So look to Jesus, the object of your faith, but also look to him as the author of your faith. He lived a perfect, a life of perfect faith. He trusted in his father. He lived a life of obedience, a life of selfless sacrifice. And his suffering and death were not and are not meaningless. He lived a life of active obedience in works of love. And so believe in him and follow him because his faith was perfect where ours isn't. And if you believe in him, that means you're united to him. That he is in you and you are in him by faith. That you are forgiven, you are covered in his righteousness. That the gift of the Holy Spirit has been given to you, bringing Christ not just to you, but in you. And so a life of repentance and obedience is is not a threat, but this beautiful, organic inevitability. Friends, good works are not burdens placed on incapable people, but the proper expression of a life aligned to Christ, empowered by the Spirit. And so what's the problem? You're out of alignment. Not looking to Jesus. Faith can't be dead, simply put, if you're united to the living Christ. You're not on your own. Salvation is not getting the driver's license and saying, now get up in the truck. Faith can't be dead, simply put, because you are united to the living Christ. And how do I know I'm united to him? Are you looking to him? I mean, isn't this what this table is? A reminder of who God is for us in Christ. So the last thing I'll say, friends, is James is a heavy word for those who trust in their own strength. James is a heavy word if you think that I I must have faith and then add to that faith my works in order to be saved. And James is a word that I I think will crush you. But James is a healthy, beautiful, good, even encouraging word for those like him, like James, who rely and receive everything from from Jesus, his elder brother and ours. Let's pray. Father, we pray confidently that your spirit would be sent among us, that he already is among us this morning, making this word personal, making this word so applicable and relevant to our lives. Lord, that we would be able to see the ways where we are not looking to Jesus. We're seeing the ways where 
too often we're, we're looking at, at other things, we're looking to other people, we're building our lives on, on those things and those people uh, that, that are not good and true and beautiful like Jesus. So Lord, would you bring us to a place of repentance? And would you bring us to a place of faith, of looking to Jesus as the object and author of that faith? Lord, for, for those who, who hear words like this as, as a burden that's too heavy to bear, um, would they be confronted with it is too heavy a burden to bear in our own strength? And would you bring those people to see the lighter yoke of Jesus and his goodness and his grace? Lord, for those of us, as, as I, we, we talked about before through this series, James is a word to those who are sleepwalking. Lord, would this word... Um, convict and meet those of us who are sleepwalking, those who too often rely on just a basic knowledge and, 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 yeah, we believe these things, and yet it makes very little difference in our lives. Lord, would you help us to see um, the greatness to which you've called us, the greatness of pursuing you and of pursuing our neighbors in love. Lord, would you do that kind of work would this word not just go in one ear and out the other, but would it be a word that by your spirit molds and forms and conforms us more and more into the image of Jesus? Lord, would you do that work? And would you make us all desirous and hungry for that work? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.